Today's Bible passage comes from Exodus 24, verses 1 to 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half and sprinkled on and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these, against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Well, friends, sometimes in the busyness of life, it can be easy for us to wonder whether being a follower of Jesus is worth all the effort. Why not live out our lives following our own desires rather than following the teaching of some Jewish guy who lived so long ago? Is it really worth it? Well, to answer this question, we need to take into consideration the goal in following Jesus. What's the ultimate destination that we're aiming for here? Well, our passage that's under study today in Exodus 24, verses 1 to 11, can actually help us in this regard because it functions to tell us what the ultimate goal of being in a covenant relationship with God is all about. We saw last time that after saving Israel from slavery in Egypt, God brought Israel to Mount Sinai and proposed in Exodus 19 to enter into a covenant relationship with the people. And here in Exodus 24, we see the covenant making ceremony taking place. In verse 1, we see God inviting Moses and three other men, plus 70 of the elders of Israel to go up Mount Sinai and meet with him. Those three other men were Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. Aaron was Moses' elder brother and was the person who was shortly going to be chosen by God to be the first high priest of Israel. And Nadab and Abihu were two of Aaron's sons. 
So altogether we have 74 people invited up the mountain to go and worship God. Now what do you reckon? Does this sound like something pretty spectacular or what? Imagine being able to meet with God and to be able to bow down and worship in his presence. Well, I reckon it is something pretty amazing that's being talked about here or at least proposed, but notice how it's not as amazing as it could be. Have a look in verse 1. According to what God says there, only 74 out of all of the people of Israel were allowed to go up. And even then, those who were allowed to go up could only worship God from a distance, God says. Furthermore, in verse 2, we see that only Moses was allowed to approach God. The other 73 were explicitly told they shall not approach, which means they shall not draw near to God. And all of the rest of the people of Israel weren't even allowed to go up the mountain. They weren't allowed to, in fact, even touch the mountain. Back in chapter 19, it says that the people were warned that anyone who touched the mountain would suffer the death penalty for encroaching on the holy zone, which was Mount Sinai. So we see that through this covenant relationship with God, Israel is going to have access to God, but it's kind of restricted, isn't it? Well, Moses goes down the mountain next and recounts God's instructions to the people. And he also tells the people all of the rules that were part of the book of the covenant. Now, these are the rules talked about in chapters 21 through to 23. They're rules to do with personal injury, basic property rights, basic morality, rules to do with the Sabbath and the religious festivals of Israel. And after reporting all of these things to the people, how do we see them responding? According to verse 3, the people were still keen to enter into this covenant relationship with God and to accept the obligations under the terms of the covenant. Notice how it says, all of the people answered with one voice and said, all of the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Here we see all of the people with one voice agreeing to the totality of what Yahweh has said. They're unified in accepting the whole of what God's proposed to them in this covenantal arrangement. And next we see in verse 4, we get Moses writing down all the words of Yahweh. And this makes sense, really, because when an important agreement's made, it's a good idea, isn't it, to have a written record of the terms of the agreement? And that's what we see Moses doing. And after writing all of those words down, next we see Moses waking up. 
early the next morning. A little detail there, but why this detail? Any thoughts? Why is it important, this little detail about rising up early in the morning? Well, it's something that reoccurs uh, in a number of the narratives of the Old Testament. Whenever it says that someone rose early in the morning to do something, that's a little sign to us as readers to pay attention because it often indicates that what happens next is something important. It's a little bit like kids who wake up extra early on Christmas morning. They've got something important to do, to open up the presents. Here we see the person in question who gets up early, they do that in order to go out and do the important thing that needs to be done. But here in Exodus 24, what's the important thing that Moses needs to do? Basically, it's the covenant-making ceremony. Moses needs to get everything ready for the ceremony. The first thing we see him doing is building an altar at the foot of the mountain, along with 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And after getting that ready, Moses sends some of the younger men to go and offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings to Yahweh. I'll say peace offerings. I noticed in the NIV there it translates it as fellowship offerings, but we'll talk about that. Now, the burnt offering was an offering that was usually to be skinned, and after that it would be fully burnt upon the altar, except for the skin, which was to be given to the priest. This kind of offering is meant to symbolise the total dedication of the worshipper in service to God. And the peace offering, also called a fellowship offering, well, this is a little bit different from the burnt offering. This type of offering basically required the fat, kidneys, and most of the liver of the animal to be burnt on the altar. But the rest of the meat of the animal was to be eaten pretty much straight away in a joyous way as a symbol of peace and fellowship between the worshipper and God. So through these types of offering, we see the ideas of atonement, dedication and peace being associated with this covenant. Now, in relation to atonement, please notice how the blood from the animals that were sacrificed, please notice how this is used in the ceremony. In verse 6, we see Moses keeping aside half of the blood in a bowl, and he's keeping it aside ready for use later on. But the other half of the blood, he takes it and splashes it against the altar. But why is he doing this? Here we need to understand that in the Bible, the blood of a perfect sacrificial victim is viewed as having the power to cleanse people and things of their uncleanness. So by splashing the altar with blood, 
Moses was cleansing and consecrating the altar. Next, he takes the book of the covenant that he'd just written out and he reads it out in the hearing of the people. This indicates then that the rules recorded in chapters 21 through to 23 were told to the people twice. Once we see it in verse 3 and now here again in verse 7. So all of this helps us to see that the terms of this covenant were quite clear to the people. You see, God isn't like some dodgy salesperson who tries to get you to sign up to something that you're not fully aware of. No, here we see clear communication on God's part. The terms of the agreement are clearly spelt out. And once again, how do the people respond? Well, once again, we see them agreeing to the terms of this covenant. All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Now, this is the third time. We see it once in Exodus 19 and twice here in Exodus 24. It's the third time that the people have indicated their wholehearted agreement to this covenant with Yahweh. And after indicating their agreement, next we see Moses taking the blood that had been stored in the bowl and splashing it upon the people. And as he does this, he proclaims, Behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you upon all these terms. Do you get what is happening here? The terms of the covenant have been agreed upon by both parties and blood is then splashed around to seal the deal. It's like signing a contract. The blood of the sacrifice inaugurates the covenant. That's when it begins and becomes legally binding. You see, blood represents both life and death. And by being sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, the people are placing themselves under oath. It's like they're saying, we promise to keep our side of the covenant bargain or else may we be slaughtered in the way that these sacrificial victims have been slaughtered. But at the same time, the blood also symbolises atonement and the forgiveness of sins. Basically, if you keep covenant with God, then your sins are forgiven and the death of the sacrificial victim is substituted for your death, meaning you get to live and not die. In this way, blood symbolises life. Someone has died so that you might live. Friends, the establishment of the Old Covenant has a lot to say to us about the significance of the New Covenant. The way that God made known the terms of the Old Covenant to Israel, a similar thing has happened with the terms of the New Covenant made known in the Gospel. 
The terms of the new covenant are clear. Follow Jesus and you will experience life. Follow Jesus and his blood will cleanse you of your sins. Follow Jesus and because of his death, you will live. Now, biblically speaking, everyone who's been baptised into Christ or everyone who's descended from a member of the old or new covenants, either by way of birth, marriage or adoption, everyone who fits into those categories is officially a member of the new covenant. So I'm assuming most of us present here today are, formally speaking, members of the new covenant. For most of us, having Christian parents, it would have been the moment of conception that from God's point of view, we became members of the new covenant. We were born into it. Although for those of us who didn't have any Israelite or Christian ancestors, then when you were baptised, that represents for you the moment that you officially entered into covenant with God. But whatever the case, if you are in covenant with God, whether you realise it or not, you are under a solemn obligation to keep covenant with God by following Jesus. You see, the blood of Jesus has touched you. You either benefit from his death and his blood or else you suffer the kind of death that he died. The choice is black and white. Keep covenant with God and live or break covenant with God and die. This is simply how the covenant works. I hope you can see then how reflecting upon the old covenant can bring great clarity to what it means for us to be in covenant with God today as members of the new covenant. There are wonderful privileges, but also serious obligations. But we haven't come to the end of our passage yet, have we? Well, the deal has been sealed. But like after any important agreement's been signed, there must be a time of celebration, right? This is exactly what we see happening in verses 9 to 11. Moses and the 73 other invitees got to go up the mountain and spend time with God. Verse 10 describes how they actually saw the God of Israel. They even saw the floor of heaven below God's feet. It looked like a tiled brick pavement where each of the bricks was made out of the most beautiful crystal blue sapphire. What an awesome sight. It's truly spectacular. But the surprising thing, according to the narrative here, isn't the sapphire pavement under God's feet. Actually, according to verse 11, the surprising thing is God didn't stretch out his hand against the nobles of Israel. 
We need to keep in mind here that ordinarily when sinful people come into the presence of a holy God, what's going to happen? Normally there's going to be retribution and carnage because unholiness cannot exist in the presence of holiness. But here we see the representatives of the people of Israel beholding God and eating and drinking in his presence. And some people think the old covenant wasn't a covenant of grace. For sin-stained humans to be able to eat and drink in God's presence, this is grace. Friends, this detail functions to remind us of the ultimate goal of covenant. The goal is communion with God. The goal is seeing God with our own eyes and eating and drinking with him in awesome celebration. You know, when Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, eat and drink in remembrance of me, he's wanting us to understand the ultimate goal of covenant has been fulfilled through his sacrificial death on the cross. Because of his death on our behalf, our sins have been forgiven and all of God's people, not just a representative few, all of God's covenant-keeping people have the wonderful privilege of being able to gaze at God while feasting in his presence. This is the goal of covenant. It's a wonderful privilege, but it goes together with the obligations of the covenant. So overall, what can we learn from this passage? Well, I think there are basically three main applications. First of all, make sure you understand the terms of the covenant that you are in with God. Secondly, make sure you live accordingly in the context of grace. And most of all, enjoy. Enjoy the presence of God in Jesus. This, after all, is the goal of God's covenant with us, for us to be able to gaze upon God and to eat and drink in fellowship with him. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we've had this wonderful opportunity to be able to look at this significant event that took place for the people of Israel so long ago. But, Lord, this isn't just ancient history. By looking at the old covenant, we can learn so much about the new covenant. And today, Lord God, you have reminded us of the importance of the blood of the sacrificial victim, which has been spilt so that your people 
might be able to be in an intimate covenant relationship with you. Lord, for the people of Israel, that was the blood of bulls and goats, which pointed forward ultimately to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, for us today, as members of the new covenant, we remember how this covenant has been inaugurated through Jesus' death on our behalf. But even more than that, we thank you, Lord God, that today we have been able to be reminded about the goal of covenant and to see that ultimately the goal is communion with you, to actually be able to gaze upon your glory in heaven and to be able to fellowship with you, to be able to feast together with you, to eat and drink in your presence. Lord God, we thank you that as we look upon the old covenant, we can see clearly what your purpose is for us under the new covenant. It's ultimately to be able to behold your glory and to enjoy your presence. Lord God, we thank you for the wonderful privileges of the new covenant. But at the same time, we thank you for reminding us of our obligation to live as covenant keepers before you. We thank you for your amazing plan for your people. And we thank you for the grace of the covenant revealed through Christ. Please help us to keep on walking as those who keep covenant with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll start with the Padlet questions then. So first question is, why is there sapphire under God's feet? Yes, good question. This one, can you hear me okay? Yep, yep. Please. Well, I would say it's not literally sapphire here, but it's something that looks like sapphire. What colour is sapphire? Blue. Blue, yeah. It's amazing crystal blue colour, isn't it? It's, it's really amazing colour. And basically what it is here, it's the floor of heaven. That's what it's meant to represent. And, in fact, we saw something like a crystal sea in the book of Revelation just recently too. Uh, really, that's the floor of heaven. When you look up at the sky, what do you see? You see blue, don't you? So the idea is this is the floor of heaven. So effectively what's happened is with God coming down upon Mount Sinai, we get heaven coming down with him. And we get the 74 representatives of Israel going up into heaven to eat and drink in the presence of God. It's, it's pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. Wow. Okay. Brilliant. So um, next question uh, we've got, was it only the elders that could eat with God or other Israelites went there, would they have, or if other uh, Israelites went there, would they have died? Yes, well, what we can see from Exodus 19 is that Effectively, a border was put around the foot of the mountain and the people were not allowed to go up into the mountain. So I assume, I don't think it was necessarily a physical border perhaps, but at least once it starts to rise, you know, to go up into the mountain proper, the Israelites were not allowed to encroach upon that zone. And in fact, they were warned that if they do that, then they would be put to death. 
So basically what we have here is a picture of, apart from the 74 who got to go up the mountain, no one else can. Okay, so really what this is saying is that under the old covenant, what we get is access to God, but not full access. And that's one of the differences between the old covenant and the new. And, you know, think about the temple. The temple symbolizes access to God, but who got to go in the temple? It was only the high priest and only once a year under the old covenant. But as we move across in the new covenant, the amazing thing is everyone of God's people gets to go in. Okay, so under the old covenant, there's access, but it's only really hinting at what will ultimately be under the new covenant when everything is opened up for God to be able to uh, allow his people to come in. And, in fact, this is something that the book of Hebrews talks about. I think it might be Hebrews chapter 12, something like that, where the writer to the Hebrews, he says, you know, back under the old covenant, there was restricted access, but now every one of God's people get to go up into the new Jerusalem. So it's like every one of God's people are actually now invited in to the Holy of Holies. So what was hinted at under the old covenant has now been fulfilled through Jesus under the new covenant. Awesome. Uh, next question. Uh... Okay, so what would the feast and celebration have looked like? Did God just make food and drink appear? Yeah, well, we don't have any details really there, do we? I'm not sure. Um, did they bring up some of the meat of the sacrifices into the mountain? It, probably not. So it may have been something that God has prepared for his people. You know, think about when we step across into the New Testament, we get Jesus providing bread for the 5,000, don't we? So it seems like this is probably something that God has prepared. Psalm 23 talks about how God prepares a table for his people in the sight of their enemies. So that's probably hinting at the fact, well, maybe this was something that God had prepared there for them. If so, that's amazing to think about. But we don't know exactly for sure. Yeah, that's fair enough. All right. Um, so were the elders in heaven then? Well, effectively, uh, biblically, heaven is wherever God is. So if God has, in a sense, come down and he's there at the top of Mount Sinai, if people get to go up there, they're going to be in heaven. So effectively, yes, this is a kind of entrance into heaven. It's only a temporary entrance. They get to gaze upon God for a certain period of time. But after they had the meal, I guess they go back down. In fact, it says they went back down and only Moses was allowed to approach the presence of God and talk to God face to face. And in fact, he does that. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, the record will tell us, as he gets further instructions about the tabernacle. Okay, so in effect, I think what's happening is this mountaintop heavenly like experience that the 74 representatives of Israel have gotten to experience at the top of the mountain. This is, in a sense, going to be replicated through the tabernacle, right? So it's as people deal with God and interact with God through the tabernacle, which then becomes the temple, now this is replicating this entrance into heaven type experience. Hopefully that clarifies a question for that person. And lastly... Uh, are there any commands from the Old Covenant that applies in the New Covenant? Good one. 
Yeah, good question. Yes, we do have to be careful as New Covenant believers when we read the Old Covenant. We have to be aware of the similarities and the differences. And hopefully today you've seen me doing that. I've been looking at what are the similarities that we see there in the Old Covenant ceremony when it was established with what we see through Jesus. And there are lots of similarities, aren't there, in terms of there's a covenant, there are terms of the covenant, there are privileges of the covenant. There are also the covenant sacrifices, ultimately pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Uh, There's also the goal of the covenant, which is communion with God and eating and drinking in his presence. So there are similarities, but there are also differences. What are the differences that we've seen today? The differences that only 74 could go up, that people couldn't even touch the mountain, whereas under the new covenant, everyone gets to see God and eat and drink in his presence. You know, when we have communion together, holy communion, Lord's Supper, that's something that we are, in effect, celebrating at that moment in time, all of God's people eating and drinking in the presence of God. So you can see there are similarities and differences. When it applies to the laws back then, same thing applies. There are similarities, but also some differences. In some, I would say, most of the, probably all of the moral commands, we could say, all of the commands that are concerned with how to interact with God, how to treat him, how to treat other people, love for our neighbour, all of these things tend to carry across into the new covenant. But the things that don't carry across, most of these things are things like the food laws, the laws for sacrifice, right? These were pointing forward to Jesus, They've been fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus has fulfilled them. We no longer have any need now for a temple or offering sacrifices on a daily basis like the people of Israel did. So look out for the similarities, but also be aware of the differences. But in sum, it's the moral laws, okay? Respect for parents, not murdering, not stealing, all of these things, you see them carrying across into the new covenant. Yeah, good point. Um, so yeah, during this passage, we've heard the number of 74 quite a lot. So I'm guessing the next question is how come 74 specifically? How come 74? Yeah, it's an interesting number. I don't think 74 itself is significant, but the 70 is interesting. The 70 seem to be just 70 elders, right, representing the people of Israel. What does that mean? Does each tribe get the same number? Probably something like that. But how do we get 12 into 70? A little bit of a difficulty there. Perhaps what it may be is that we get Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, they were representing the tribe of Levi. Uh, Moses was also from the tribe of Levi. So uh, what it seems to be is that we're getting all of Israel represented before God here. Uh, There's also a tradition in Jewish thinking that the nations that surrounded Israel, there were 70 of them. So whether that's hinting a little bit at the fact that ultimately, well, I think it's a bit of a stab in the dark here. We just don't know. But uh, is this number 70 somehow indicating that, okay, we don't have the Gentiles being involved here, but who knows, you know, is, is this at least prompting us to think about what about the other nations? What's going to happen to them? And we had this question last time, didn't we? Was God discriminating? He's entering into this covenant with Israel, but what about all the other nations? Well, we're going to have to wait to the new covenant for that, aren't we? And that's one of the distinctives of the new covenant. Not just one nation now, but it's been opened up to all nations. So perhaps the 70 there, it might be posing a bit of a question. 
Apart from that, I can't see any other significance really in the uh, 74, although 70, a nice, that makes a nice number, isn't it? Like uh, seven times 10. That's a nice kind of biblical number there. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for your uh, answers to those questions, Reverend Steve. Uh, That's okay. Sign for as always. And um, yeah, 